Hello, gas passers, and welcome to another episode of the North American Veterinary Anesthesia Society podcast sponsored by DECRA. I'm your host, Dr. Bonnie Gatson. Our mission with this podcast is to explore the latest advancements and hot topics in veterinary anesthesia to help veterinary professionals and caregivers advance and improve the safe administration of anesthesia and analgesia to all animals. As part of this educational mission, we spend a lot of time talking about how we, as anesthetists, can improve the safety of our patients under anesthesia. But what about the safety of the anesthetist? And I'm not talking about physical safety, although I have heard some great stories about oxygen tanks turning into projectile missiles. No, today's episode, we are going to talk about the emotional and psychological health and safety of veterinary professionals providing anesthesia services. But first, a huge shout out to our sponsor, DECRA, without whom this podcast would not be possible. We are very grateful to them as they allow us here at the NAVAS podcast to have creative control over the content of this podcast, while also aligning with the overall mission of NAVAS regarding anesthesia education. If you have not done so already, please check out their line of veterinary anesthesia-related products at www.decra-us.com. Second, just a reminder to register for the NAVAS Virtual Spring Symposium going down on April 27th and 28th of this year. You can register at www.mynavas.org slash 2024-spring-symposium. Registration opened on February 1st, so make sure that you pause this episode and go register right now before you forget. At the website, you will also find the full speaker lineup with a line of speakers for a technician track, a general anesthesia track, and an advanced specialty track. So you can pick and choose which topics are the most relevant for you. It's going to be an amazing weekend full of anesthesia education, and you won't want to miss it. In fact, our guest today on the podcast is going to be one of the featured speakers at the symposium. So if you like what you're hearing today and you want to learn more, Remember to register for the NAVAS Virtual Spring Symposium. Lastly, if you haven't done so already, please consider becoming a member of the North American Veterinary Anesthesia Society. That is just one way that you can support this podcast. But if you've been listening to the show over the past year and you find yourself enjoying the content, please spread the word by liking and subscribing to this podcast. Consider telling your friends and coworkers about us. We really appreciate any and all listener support. In this episode, we are going to be discussing a phenomenon called second victim syndrome. It's a term I first heard only a few years ago at a veterinary anesthesia specialty conference. I was sitting in the audience listening to the lecturer describe the psychological impact and the symptoms of second victim syndrome, and I couldn't help but think to myself, wow, I have totally experienced this. Something unique about anesthesia is that it is a high-stakes field driven almost entirely by human decision-making. An animal does not become anesthetized unless we make it so, and this makes anesthetists particularly vulnerable to human error and clinical mistakes. A portion of the practice of anesthesiology remains an art, and it is not unexpected that errors, complications, or unexpected outcomes, although unintended, will occur, and the patient may suffer as a result. We, as veterinary professionals, are taught, above all, to do no harm, and this makes veterinarians and technicians vulnerable to the second victim syndrome when a medical error does occur. The second victim experiences negative and potentially debilitating effects on their physical, mental, and overall well-being which can culminate in burnout or other severe mental health conditions. In an era where more and more veterinary professionals are experiencing too much pressure from mounting daily challenges and an ever-increasing expectation for delivery of clinical care, what can we do to protect ourselves from the mental health challenges of working in this profession? And what can be done to help the second victim, the anesthesia provider, when a medical error or an adverse outcome does occur? To help guide us through this important but difficult topic is Dr. Luis Santos. He is a senior clinician of veterinary anesthesia at the University of Glasgow, and he is currently obtaining his PhD in topics related to patient safety culture, 
burnout and second victim syndrome as they relate to veterinary anesthetic practice. As a warning, there will be mention of mass casualty events and suicide in this episode, and we will timestamp those points in the episode in the show notes in case that is something you do not want to listen to. As a reminder, please consider subscribing to the North American Veterinary Anesthesia podcast on your favorite podcast platform to stay updated on the latest in veterinary anesthesia. Let's begin. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Why don't you start by introducing yourself and just letting us know where you're at right now and what your past training was. Hi, Bonnie. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So my name is Luis Santos. I'm a board certified anesthesiologist. I'm a senior clinician in veterinary anesthesiology at the University of Glasgow. And I'm also doing a part-time PhD, believe it or not, on, on the, the aspects related to patient safety and staff's well-being at the University of Queensland. I'm originally from Brazil. I've done my anesthesia training, including my internship in anesthesia in LSU and my residency at Cornell University. So I like to ask all of my guests this, but what drew you to having an interest in anesthesia? Oh, that's a good question. I guess it's exactly this non-technical skills that anesthesia brings you, these challenges, this self-awareness, the difficult decision-making process that we have to do with a patient that is under our care. I started my journey as an anesthesiologist working with analgesia, especially in horses. So I was fascinated since early ages, since I had my my surgeries and no, and with local anesthetics and how fascinating that was. So all these things, I, I guess, contribute a little bit to my desire to start anesthesia. That's, I like how you said something about your childhood. I actually recently was thinking about this personally. I always kind of told the story and I'm sure my listeners have heard the story before that there was actually a veterinary technician that I worked with in vet school that kind of pushed me into anesthesia. But recently I just kind of came to me in a, in a memory that when I was a child, I tripped and fell and I split my knee open and I had to go to the hospital to get stitches. I was also away at, at summer camp. So I didn't like, I didn't have my parents with me or anything like that. It was just me and like this poor, probably 19-year-old camp counselor. <laughs> <laughs> they did the stitches and they numbed me with lidocaine. And I think like that might have been a very early memory of mine that really sparked my interest in anesthesia. Like I remember they were just suturing my knee closed and I was like staring at it along with the doctor. Like I just got to watch it happen. I didn't feel anything. And I, that might have been like one of my first introductions to the power of, of anesthesia. So it's I, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad you brought like your childhood into that as well. <laughs> Mine was an epidural when you I was early. I had, a nerve, I had a fractured femur when I was young and I had an epidural. I was like, oh my God, this is actually, I'm not feeling any pain anymore. This is yes. great. Yeah, I've had two kids now, so I've gotten to have two epidurals, and they are, like, amazing. <laughs> yes. So, for our listeners today, the goal for us is to talk a little bit about burnout, and we're going to talk about something called second victim syndrome in veterinary medicine, and we're going to specifically relate this down to anesthetic practice. And we're going to define those terms kind of momentarily but you mentioned that you were doing a PhD in patient safety. So what drew you to patient safety concerns in general? What led you to wanting to become a strong advocate for conditions like second victim syndrome in veterinary medicine? Well, I guess it's, it's a little bit about personal experience uh, as a vet. Before becoming an anesthesiologist, I used to be a uh, an equine clinician, an ambulatory clinician for delving into anesthesia. And the whole thing about incivility culture has always been there for me, but we always thought early age when we graduate that things like that are normal, you know, misbehaving, incivility, toxic culture that we see sometimes and we don't stop to think. So 
at early age during my career as a vet, I always thought something wrong here that we, we could. But when we are young, we're always trying to prove ourselves, isn't it? I want to be the best anesthesiologist. I want to be the best ones that put catheters, arterial catheters. I want to put a central line. I want to be always intubating, you know, doing the best anesthesia possible. And we often forget to focus on the other things that that needs to happen. Like I, I said before, this in, in all these decision-making processes, the culture within the space you you work, how that affects having the animal on the table and having the animal coming out to the client alive and without any comorbidities from anesthesia. So all these steps, uh, I think it's fundamental uh, as well. And we often don't emphasize that during vet school. And I learned through my PhD, basically, I always wanted to do something research related with these aspects of patient safety. And also not only this, the patient itself, but also with the individual, like us anesthesiologists or anesthetists. I'm not talking just to anesthesiologists, I'm talking also to technicians, you know, vet nurses, vet technicians out there that deal with animal, any individual dealing with animal. And that's how I came to doing research with that, that type of subject. So what it sounds like you're saying, and if I'm wrong, please correct me, is that as veterinarians or technicians, we feel like the patient's outcome is directly related to our skill set, how much we know, and we want to be like the best possible practitioners that like we can be because that way we can control the situation. It sounds like what you are saying is you're trying to study how the culture of the entire hospital or how systems are set up that can affect patient outcome that are outside the individual's control. Is that kind of what you're trying that's to say? Ex that's exactly it, Bonnie. You're spot on. Especially teamwork is, uh, is part of the culture, like how you work as a team, how you communicate, you know, how leaders lead. We're, we're not taught how to lead yeah. until we, we become seniors. And that can be for a vet tech or for a veterinarian. So we're not taught how to lead. So we sometimes have to kind of learn this on the go and it's not it's not ideal and so all these aspects that surrounds patient safety culture i think it's super important for what we do and the outcome of the patient yes it's directly related to all these factors not just yes i know how to put a catheter i know how to intubate but if you don't know how to do make a, a proper decision in a stressful environment in a stressful uh, situation then you might be putting your patient at risk. For our listeners, if you're interested in learning a little bit more about patient safety issues and steps you can take to increase your level of patient safety awareness at your hospital, we have a previous episode on that with Dr. Lydia Love. So I'm going to redirect you towards that episode. But really our focus today for this episode is to talk about a syndrome that has been defined fairly well in the human side, but is less well described on the veterinary side of practice, which is second victim syndrome. So I'm going to start by asking you to just define what second victim syndrome is. So the second victim is basically, it's like you said, it's a terminology that has been coined by human anesthesiologists back in 2000. In healthcare, they have been studying second victim phenomena for 20, now four years. So it's a phenomenon, it's a syndrome where we're talking about professionals here and not necessarily veterinarians and vet techs. It can be any individual that deals with animal under their animal care uh, who suffers an emotional trauma as a result of a medical error or an adverse patient event. So if, for example, you... I myself consider myself a second victim because I was traumatized in the past by having a horse once fracture its leg in the recovery. And I was deeply, deeply um, affected psychologically, doubting my skills, doubting if that's what the right thing I'm, I'm doing. So those are the characteristics of second vi victim syndrome. It's that psychological impact on the individual after an adverse outcome. 
thank you for sharing that personal story. Does it have to be related to a medical error that can trigger some of this emotional trauma? Or are there any types of triggering events that can occur that can cause second victim syndrome? Usually, by definition, when we compare to burnout, because burnout can have similar symptoms, we might probably can talk about that later, but that's work-related in terms of stress of chronic workload. Second victim uh, is directly related to a medical error or an outcome, adverse outcome, but it can increase in intensity this psychological trauma if a patient has had burnout, for example, already. If a patient is burned out and had had an error or a mistake as not supported, is not acknowledged, then that second victim phenomenon can, can, can be increased. Yeah, I wanted to point something out. We'll talk about burnout in a little bit, but I think it's well documented, at least on the human side, and I'm not sure about the veterinary side, that clinicians or technicians that are burnt out are more likely to cause medical error. So I think the two can kind of like burnout can lend itself to second victim syndrome. Correct. And the other thing I want to just mention is that I was reading up a little bit about second victim syndrome before we spoke because it's something that I'm personally interested in but don't know very much about. So I was reading about an ER clinician who was working in Las Vegas during the mass murder that happened there. And that person described that they had felt second victim syndrome related to the amount of trauma that they had seen that evening. And so I don't know if that is something that at least maybe not on the anesthesia side, but maybe on the emergency and critical care side, if you have, you know, a lot of animals coming at once for some kind of mass event that's happened, I wonder if that can lend itself also potentially to second victim syndrome. Yeah. And there's a little bit of compassion fatigue as well there. When you care about someone like in your example or an animal uh, that you care a lot and you feel that sensation of I could do much more, you know, of senseless or hopeless and, and a little bit of guilt. So are there certain subsets of the veterinary profession, for example, like anesthesia practitioners that are more likely to experience second victim syndrome or can really like anybody in any aspect of the field experience the syndrome? Anyone really funny, it, it's, it can be from the receptionist, it can be a vet tech, it can be the anesthesiologist, the emergency clinician, the medicine clinician, the oncology that deals with grievance and, 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 and patients with cancer. So the prevalence and impact might vary among different groups or specialties, and especially based on factors like the nature of their work, the frequency of high stakes decisions and the proximity to the adverse patient events. So anesthesia, for example, and emergency medicine are probably some of the areas that the individual will probably be more affected by. I'm not saying it's exclusively, but because you're dealing with high stakes situations, stressful environment, the patient lies as a stake in those situations. So those individuals are probably more prone to the second victim phenomenon. So if some of these stuff you're listening to it and it's sounding a little bit familiar to you, can you just describe maybe what some of the symptoms of second victim syndrome are and maybe also talk about what we know about kind of the physical and emotional consequences of second victim syndrome? Yeah, of course. Um, so uh, those are individuals when they're affected by second vic- victim syndrome, those are individuals that they felt personally responsible for the outcome of their patient. Those are the individuals that they have, they feel that as they have failed the patient, they start second guessing their clinical skills and their knowledge. They feel like they could and they should have done more for that patient. So that sensation of guilt is there. So the emotions are diverse and people will feel one or two emotions and they can feel a range of emotions that can range from guilt, fear, anxiety, 
even depression. And all these events can be the events, the outcomes that whatever happened to the patient, you amputate the wrong leg or you gave the wrong drug that, you know, all these things can be replaying, reviving the event is another thing that happens during the second victim syndrome as well. Questioning their decisions, you know, feelings of incompetence, loss of confidence, fear of future errors. People avoid doing similar procedures. Like on my case, for example, I can testify when I had a horse breaking its leg, I second guess myself, am I really good at what I'm doing? You know, should I be doing something else? Should I be just teaching students? I don't know if I should be a clinician. And so those emotions, they start to come into your head. And there's a defined pathway when you're a second victim. We can talk about that later if you want. There's a recovery period that I can talk to you about that's pretty defined for second victims. We're going to talk a little bit later about what it looks like when you're recovering and maybe factors that can help you if you feel like you have suffered from second victim syndrome things that we know that that help people get through that. So we are going to address that in a little bit. Do you think there are certain personality traits that are instilled in us as veterinarians and veterinary technicians, just being in the veterinary field? Do you think there are certain personality traits that are instilled in us to make us be more at risk of experiencing second victim syndrome? Yes, absolutely. So Individuals that are more empathized, so they, they're more uh, empathetic towards patients, are more prone to second victim, victim syndrome. So you can relate, for example, or individuals that are, for example, anesthetizing your sister's dog. Yeah. You feel that pressure, you know. So there are circumstances and feelings or characteristics on the individual's integrity that can make you a little bit more prone to second victim syndrome. Yes, definitely. I'm also thinking of the fact that in the veterinary profession, we're oftentimes told to like stuff our feelings down and keep going Mm. and get through the grind. And a lot of times people are not given the space to process a tragedy or a medical error if it happens because we just have to keep going. And there's like a a level of stoicism that's required, or at least it's told to us that it's required in order for us to be the most productive individuals that we can be and help the most number of patients that we can help. And I mean, I, I can't even tell you how many times, you know, I've been with a team and we've gone through a code and it was awful. We lost a dog or a cat and then we have another case we have to do. You know, so you kind of have to just do the next case and there's not enough people to maybe tag out. And, you know, maybe the technicians who were there in the code, there's not enough people for those to allow those technicians who are involved in the code to step away and, and process whatever happened to them. So that level of stoicism and that level of like get through as many cases as you can and just jump to the next case. I just feel like that might worsen or make it more likely for a person to experience second victim syndrome. I don't know if you feel that way or you agree or if you have. No, 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 no. I absolutely agree with you. And, And that's up to the leadership. The leaders need to be more empathetic towards their staff. You know, uh, leaders are there to support their staff, uh, not just to make money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, money is important. We are a provider of a service. You know, people keep telling me, yes, we are a provider of service. I agree. But we need to come to our work a little bit more humane about each other. Checking in, are you okay? If you see a person that is struggling already in the first consult, offer help, offer an advice saying, do you want me to do this? the next concert for you, or do you want to just have five minute coffee break just to in between these concerts to actually talk about this, to kind of diffuse. I, I think we're losing the humanity of going from case to case, or if you have to do case to case, if we're not allowed to have a break, at least at the end of the day, try to diffuse those emotions before going home. In the end, you're going home to your kids, to your family. You don't want to be coming home angry and frustrated. Talk to your kids, to your family. And and that's often what we have. And that's why 
second victim can lead to burnout and vice versa. Even a burnout person can, when a mistake happens, can aggravate. So I think the emotions, and we often say, don't go home straight away, right? And we sometimes, I used to do that mistake. I used to say, just go home, you know, you made a mistake. Something happened to this patient, just go home. And, and there's actually, no, you should actually just go upstairs or to the office of X, Y, and Z and uh, let's, let's have a coffee or just diffuse a little bit, uh, talk to a friend. And we're going to talk about the support, the support structures for second victims, but uh, it's important that the day-to-day uh, of a veterinary vet technician is acknowledged that it's a hard, we're here for patients, first and most important. And for, to give the best care for our patients, we need to be in a good mental health. Yeah, I think that's such an important point is that if you want to be the best possible clinician you can be, you have to be in a good mental state. It's absolutely but it's up, But it's up to leaders to, to, yeah, to be absolutely. there and see, yeah. Louise, I'm, I see you're struggling. But do you want me to do this consult for you? You know, and we can talk about later and, and give that support because otherwise burnout will happen. <laughs> Yeah. And I think just to add to that, if you are somebody who has decided to reach out to somebody who you think is struggling, I think the first thing is I feel like the person who needs the most amount of help is the person who's the least likely to ask for help. And so I do think it is important that you check in on your colleagues, but just be aware and be okay with the fact that you might get resistance and try to just keep in the back of your brain that just asking, Hey, are you okay? Is, and and that person might be like, I don't want to talk about it. Leave me alone. But probably just the act of you asking, it might just be helpful enough. What second victim desires, the person that is affected, what do they want? They want to be appreciated. They want it to be respected. They want it to be valued. They want to be part of the team. Whenever you make a mistake or you give the wrong dose, you know, made the wrong decision, you don't want people gossiping on the hallways talking about you and oh, that guy is incompetent. He made the decision on the wrong leg. You never know what people are going on on their private lives when they come to work, you know. So the individual wants to feel valued. They, they want to be part of a team. They want to be trusted. And when you come to a person like uh, with second victim, Obviously, everyone, you don't need to be a second victim. Everyone wants to be valued, right? And part of a team. But second victims, they are on steroids, wanting for help, wanting to be acknowledged, wanting to say, look, I know you, you're frustrated. A mistake can happen, but I'm here. You're a good technician. I've seen you done wonderful jobs, uh, anesthesias. I've seen you how you anesthetize. It happened. Human, uh, uh, make mistakes is human. You know, acknowledge, send a message that you're here if you need, even if the person doesn't want to talk to you. Just send a message. Yeah, that was really well said. So let's talk a little bit about um, medical errors. And again, I, I do have another episode on patient safety, so I don't want to spend too much time on this. But we do know that second victim syndrome is often linked to medical errors. So maybe we should learn a little bit about what are the most common types of medical errors that we can see in anesthetic practice? Because maybe that will heighten our awareness to avoid making these types of mistakes if we can. So do we know how often anesthetists are involved in medical errors compared to other types of specialists? It's really hard to answer that question. Yeah. Bonnie, because the problem with veterinary medicine, we don't publish our mistakes, <laughs> medical errors as often as healthcare does. And we're very embryonic to talk about mistakes in our field. We're scared of saying we're feeling incompetent. And thank God, Dr. Eric Hoffmeister <laughs> came and published an article on very medicine talking about what happened in his, cl- in his uh, clinic in, in talking about how many intubations, esophageal intubations, how many pop-off valves were left closed, and then the interventions that they made to actually decrease those so I take my hat for him to, to, to talk about those mistakes in his, in his place. And we should be doing this more. We should be talking more about errors and mistakes. There's a person here in the UK called Catherine Oxtoby. She published 
a while back now, but talking about we need to talk about errors. We need to embed this in our culture. Uh, we need to report. We need to disclose. We need to talk about it. And hopefully that message starts to spread in the variant community and we know more about these numbers. We know that in healthcare, for example, just to give you some, some perspective of what happens in the healthcare, we know that anesthesiologists and intensive care providers, by dealing with drugs, we often make more mistakes, calculation mistakes, giving wrong route, wrong drug, etc. There's actually a study done in 2012 uh, by a healthcare provider called Fanaz Gazzoni. It's from the University of Virginia Department of Anesthesiologists. And uh, he published that and around 90% of anesthesiologists experience at least one serious perioperative injury or death of a patient over their entire career. So we can assume that variant anesthesiologists, variant technicians, they, they are very the same. We will all be at least have one patient that had some sort of comorbidity or, or, or died on anesthesia. And it's good that they're reporting these numbers, but we don't know anything in very medicine, as far as I know to, to date. Yeah, we're going to link the study that was done by Dr. Eric Hoffmeister and his team when he was working at Georgia. We will link that in the show notes. And I remember reading that paper and finding a lot of inspiration as far as things that I can do in my practice that allow me to reduce errors. I think, like you mentioned, the most common errors that were reported in that paper, and also in my personal experience, I agree with this, is really drug errors, mostly in mm -hmm. drug calculations and route errors. Somebody gave a drug intravenously when they should have given it intramuscularly, for example. Right. Yeah. And so one of the strategies that was suggested in that paper and that I actually have adopted in my clinical practice, and I think probably most of the technicians that work with me know that I do this, which is that before I ever inject a medication, I always read the drug label and mm -hmm. either I'm doing it in my head or I'm doing it out loud. The paper suggests that you should do it out loud because it's an extra mental step, but yeah. read the drug label and state the route that you're giving it. It, it sounds funny, isn't it? That yeah, it you does have sound really to, funny. That, Funny and people, when I do my classes with closed loop communication in CPR, people, are like, why do you have to repeat? It's obvious that yeah, I'm going to get the right drug. I'm going to give the right drug. And if we underestimate our cognitive abilities and when we're stressed, when we're hungry, all those human factors that lead to a mistake, it becomes so easy by talking to yourself out loud, sends a message to your brain, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I also think there's a book that was published and I haven't read it. But I'm curious about it. I think there is a book about medical errors in veterinary anesthetic practice. Do you know about this book? Yeah, I think there's a book by Dr. Ludders. My, actually, he was my supervisor at Cornell University. I actually read the draft before he published. Uh, it, it's interesting you talked about this. Uh, it's Macmillan and Ludders, I think. Yeah. He, he told me, Luis, I don't know if this, will, this book will be published because there's no appetite. And that was 15 years ago, more or less, when I was still in my residency. And I say, I'm sure we will get published, Dr. Lada. You know, this is super important, but I'll tell that to the editorial, to the editorial people, because I've been trying to get, you know, people to publish this type of stuff. And thank God it came out, you know, it's like something to have. Yeah. So there's a lot of terms when it comes to mental health conditions that veterinary professionals can succumb to in practice. We talked mm. about burnout, but I want to take a minute to talk about some of these other types of conditions and how they relate to second victim syndrome. So the first one is compassion fatigue, which you mentioned earlier. So can you just mm. define what that is? Yeah. Compassion fatigue is this condition where often is, is experienced by professionals, not only healthcare professionals, but veteran professionals as well, who are frequently exposed to this emotional distress of others or of their patients. So, for example, a nurse working in an ICU might constantly encounter patients and clients going through intense suffering and grief. So, over time, for example, this nurse may start feeling quite emotionally drained, physically exhausted. 
and find it harder to feel empathy, you know, and could become even more irritable or anxious. So this is what compassion fatigue is, is this drainage of emotion. I cannot bear this anymore. You know, it's, it's difficult to empathize with difficult situations and uh, stressful situations. And compassion fatigue can also lead to burnout if, if not addressed. That's what's important as well. Yeah, let's define burnout for our listeners then. So burnout is this state of physical, emotional, and mental exhaustion. It's caused by prolonged and excessive stress. It's a chronic stress that happens at work and drains you physically, emotionally, mentally. Unlike compassion fatigue, which is specifically related to exposure to other suffering or the animal suffering, burnout can happen in any occupation. It's often related to work environment and workload. So that's basically the big difference. So I guess an example would be a veterinarian who works long hours in a busy animal clinic, you know, and he deals with sick animals, emotional pet owners, and sometimes has to make tough decisions like euthanasia. And despite their, their love for the animals, the vet starts feeling overwhelmed by the workload, emotional stress, and possibly even financial pressures of running the clinic. Exactly the, those cases that you mentioned earlier about having one consult after the other and not having the pause to kind of diffuse the, those emotions from the first consult, for example, yeah. leads to, in the end, burnout. How are compassion fatigue and burnout and second victim syndrome, are these just all kind of similar ways of saying the same thing or are they related to each other in some way? No, they, no, they are not the same thing, but the emotions can be the, the psychological impact, grief, stress, trauma, guilt, you know, I cannot sleep well, all, uh, you know, the sensation of I don't know if I'm doing this the right thing. So those are things that are quite similar, but I think the, 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 the reasons behind are different. Okay. So second victim, again, is something that we're addressing as a phenomena where people, when they make mistakes and adverse patient outcomes, like, for example, I anesthetize a, a dog for a spay in castration. This animal died under anesthesia and there's that burden that sensation, that psychological impact from that event. Burnout, again, related to work-related stress. And then compassion fatigue is that the empathy-related to animals and, and clients that is exhausted. Do we have any data on how often burnout or second victim syndrome are occurring in the veterinary profession? Yeah, burnout is something that is actually studied a lot more than second victim phenomena. And it has been pre-COVID and exacerbated with post-COVID. So approximately, I would say 50% or more of veterinarians report and moderate to high levels of burnout. There are studies saying students, depending on the level, there's a nice paper from Dr. Michelle Steffi from the University of California, Davis. She's an oncosurgeon, published also student burnout, technician burnout, and, and veterinarian. So... Yes, burnout is present, is a, is a thing. We need to acknowledge it exists. The rate of burnout will depend on age, gender, with women twice more likely having burnout than men. And we probably know why. I have my wife and she, I posed that question to my wife <laughs> the other day. What did so she say? Do you, I'm curious. What, why do you think women has twice more? And she's like, Louise, do you really want to know? <laughs> One is because I have, I have to pick up the kids and deliver to, to school. I have to solve the issues with not only the kids, but with my horse and my dogs. And I also have to deal with being a woman in an academic environment where, you know, all those issues with salary differences. And so... And I say, that's exactly what this paper <laughs> that I'm quoting actually says. It, it, it is, there's a, there's differences between gender. And I don't know what you think. No, <laughs> I totally agree. With agree. I think that women from, I mean, even girls from very young age are basically, it's ingrained almost in young girls that to carry the emotional burden of running a household is it's just incredibly ingrained 
uh, ever since you're very young. And that carries with you through adulthood. And so I agree. I mean, personally, I do feel like I am constantly juggling my career and my family life and having to do that without feeling guilt about neglecting either one. It's a huge yeah. challenge for sure. A huge personal see, challenge. So see the, the emotion, the emotions are already there. And then you come to a very high stress environment like very medicine and you, you endure a place sometimes where the culture is not there for you. There's no support. So, so yes, those are the, the factors. So uh, young, young veterinarians with, or less experienced veterinarians, there's also evidence to suggest exhibit higher burnout rates compared to those with more experience. Um, so that's an interesting thing as well. And, and probably we, we understand why. So let's talk a little bit now about strategies that mitigate these emotional symptoms that occur as a result of second victim syndrome. So if you have second victim syndrome or you think you have it, or there's somebody that you work with that you're concerned about might have this, what do we know about the recovery period and what do we know about strategies that we can do to help somebody or ourselves if we feel like we are experiencing second victim syndrome? So basically, second victims have a, a very defined recovery period. And it's quite interesting because there are six stages, basically. And it, this was a study done by Dr. Scott, a, a research nurse. In preparation for our discussion today, I actually did find on YouTube a lecture that she gave about second victim syndrome. Yes. So I would totally direct people, if you're interested in learning more about this, you should totally watch her talk. She's wonderful and she's like has so much information to give. She published in 2009 uh, the recovery trajectory of second victims. So basically... There is this chaos and accident response that this first stage where people go through, where, you know, they realize the mistakes and the errors they made. They tell somebody trying to get help. So it's this moment where you're most distracted by the event. So it, it is the chaos right after the event. Then we have the stage two, which is intrusive reflections, where you start, you know, reevaluating the scenario and self-isolating yourself. You recognize that you made something bad to the patient, this feelings of inadequacy. And then you go through stage three, where is they're restoring this personal integrity. It's always feeling like people are pointing fingers at you, trying to manage this gossip that it goes around um, and trying to accept, be accepted again in that circle of safety. And then the fourth stage is the enduring the inquisition, as, as she, she mentions, where you feel like now you're in a police station where somebody's in the other side of the table and trying to get information from you. And then you realize how serious it was, uh, the mistake that happened. So trying to understand what happened, you know, and the whys about the event. So all these four stages can happen one after the other, or it can happen simultaneously. Now, the fifth stage is obtaining emotional first aid. And that's when second victims, they're trying to identify, the individuals are trying to identify who is safe to confide, who is safe to talk to, that someone hopefully will reach out. This is the stage where I'm dying to, to receive some or a comment or somebody come talk to me. Are you okay? You know, do you want to talk to? And then the final stage is the moving on stage, which can have three subsets of outcomes. So second victims can either thrive. So that depends on if you're, especially on pre-factors, like if you don't have any burnout related, if you're a person that thrives on mistakes, for example, okay, I, I actually learned with giving that wrong drug on the wrong route or the wrong dose, and uh, I learned that, and I'm not going to do that again. And you feel clean, and you feel emotionally okay about it. You're thriving. Yeah. You kind of don't have emotions about it anymore. 
Then we have the survivors, as she mentions, or her text is where the survivors are the people that are, are there, but they're still emotionally quite loaded with negative emotions, guilt, fear, and, and they're just doing the bare minimum work. We call that presentism. There's absenteeism where people suddenly don't show to work because of mental health, but then we have people that come to work. They are doing the bare minimum necessary, but still affected by it. So we call presentism. Different from quiet quitting, which has a terminology where it's not related to mental health or sickness. Presentism is related to sickness. Yeah, it's like showing up physically, but not showing up mentally. Exactly, exactly. And then what worries me most is the dropping outs, is the people that are so affected by it, so deeply, deeply psychologically affected by it, that they either change careers, they go to do anesthesia or, or another type of work in a different service. Like, for example, a, a technician that was doing anesthesia now is doing you know, consults or reception. They're moved to a different section of the hospital. And worryingly, the ones that we have to be careful is the ones that we have to that level as well about those individuals. And I don't know if you know about the case of that nurse in U.S., the medical nurse that she gave the wrong drug to a child and she was convicted of manslaughter. Slaughter and yeah, that was a very popular case in the U.S., mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that individual, her license, she never would work again, you know, and you could understand the emotional impact of that. And and she eventually took her life. You know, yeah. it is tricky. And, and that's why people are so afraid of reporting and talking about it. I think, though, by giving a platform to talk about second victim syndrome and normalizing some of the emotional feelings you're going to have when you make a medical error, I think that is very powerful and Mm -hmm. um, very important to get out there so that we can try to allow people to understand that it's normal and maybe take away some of the stigma of the consequences of making a medical error. So it's really important. I'm so glad you're here talking about that today. Thank you. Uh, now, answering the other question about what strategies work to mitigate the onset of second victim, my answer is support the individual. Yeah. I'm not talking only about leadership here. I'm talking about the, the individual next to you, your colleague. Re- extend your hand to the, your colleague and say, you know, tap in the back, say, hey, I'm here with you. We're in this together. I trust you. So support, support, support. It's normalizing, like you said, mistakes. Mistakes are humans, happen to a lot of us. And we need to create this culture of learning and support for one another. And you briefly talked to Lydia uh, on the previous podcast about uh, a little bit about blame culture. And this is something that we need to shift eventually. So... When, when I'm talking about support, people ask, okay, Luis, so what leaders and organizations can do to support these, these individuals? It's published and it's proven all throughout this 24 years of research in healthcare about second victims that the best thing to do is having a peer support program. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what is a peer support program? Not even all healthcare providers have peer support program. It's something that you get individuals from the same expertise. So for example, veterinarians, vet nurses, vet technicians, receptionists, interns, residents, train these individuals in mental health first aid. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then form this group of people to collaborate and be there for if this individual wants to talk about the mistake. So if, if I make a mistake, maybe I'm more comfortable talking to another anesthesiologist rather than my supervisor because yeah. I don't go along with my supervisor. You know what I mean? So you have that in your practice. It doesn't need to be a great amount of individuals. It can be one or two people that are keen to listen, you know, but it needs to be trained. So a peer support program is, is well-established and is proven to be effective for second victims. Then we have the, uh, the whole counseling that, that, 
practices can can send their staff, psychologists, and educating staff about second victim syndrome is one step that practices can do. Engaging staff to do self-care activities, you know, and maintain work-life balance. But I don't like when leaders and organizations bring a psychologist to talk about all this, you know, create awareness, but they don't do anything about actually let's do it. Right. Instead, instead of just saying, oh, I care, I know about this, but let's do it then, you know, let's bring the resources because this will impact an individual. And for those leaders listening to this podcast, it will save you money mm-hmm. on staff turnover. Because I can guarantee if you don't take care of that staff, that staff will drop out. Right. And by taking care of that staff, you avoid turnover, which sometimes can take months nowadays to get a new vet tech or a new vet. And that saves you money. Yeah, there's a few things I wanted to add to that. So when I was learning a little bit more about second victim syndrome, something that I read about or I heard about on the on the human medical side is that when they talk about the person who you want to confide in, if you feel like you've had a medical error or something like that, most physicians felt the most comfortable talking to a peer of the same level. So exactly. if you're a technician, you should talk to another technician. If you are mm-hmm. a veterinarian, either talking to a technician or a veterinarian, depending on the relationships you have, is really important. Something else I think that is totally missing in most of my practices but that, that I go to, but something that's super important is you should have somewhere in your hospital where you post, at least in the U.S. we have this, National Suicide Hotline Prevention phone number, uh-huh. just be somewhere up in the hospital and just just making people aware that it exists and just having it somewhere so that if that's a resource you feel like you need, that you have that. Have you heard of something called Code Lavender? No. So, no, I don't. Yeah, I didn't. This Sorry. is something that I, I heard about very recently and I thought it was really interesting. It's something that it's not in every hospital, but it's something that was developed I think in a human hospital in the NICU department, because again, this is an area where you have very high stakes patients that are, Mm -hmm. you know, potentially having very complicated disease processes. And so they develop something called a code lavender, whereby if some kind of catastrophic event happens, either you lose a patient or you meet a medical error, something like that that individual has the freedom to call a code lavender. And essentially what that means is that there's a team of nurses or doctors on standby that you can call and will fill that person's role so that person can leave the floor. Oh my God, that's amazing. I haven't heard of that. That's great. I mean, I don't think it's something that we could necessarily do in veterinary medicine. I mean, most places are so understaffed in the first place. But wouldn't that be amazing if we could implement something similar to a code lavender? Yes. Um, No, that's amazing. Yeah, obviously you would have. But you can do what you know what you can do. You can call that person that was on after our shift. Can you come a little bit earlier to start this shift, you know, or even if you have to pay a little bit more, you know, uh, to to kind of offset the staff that needs to be leaving early because of an issue. So we should allow this flexibility as well on, on how, obviously if the staff can come earlier to support. Yeah. And as leadership, just making sure you financially support everybody who's exactly. doing that. Yeah. So if you feel that you have experienced second victim syndrome or somebody you know is experiencing this right now, Louise, do you mind pointing out some resources that people can turn to in order to get the help that they need? Yeah, each institution or or practice and each country, I think they will have some sort of mental health support system in place. It's so variable. Here in the UK, we have uh, hotlines 24-7. In Scotland, there is one just for Scotland for, for veterinarians and vet nurses 24-7 24-7 hotlines are very nice because they are confidential. They're, and you, you don't need to disclose who you are, but you is all answered by vets on the other side of the phone. Obviously, people can seek if the organization provides that 
support programs for counseling services and peer support networks. That's great. And I think that's what we have now here in Glasgow University. We formed the group of multidisciplinary group of people invested in and trained in mental health first aid. And we're starting this not only with the students, but also for the for the staff. I think it's up to the organization to provide those services or at least say, okay, you need some time off. And I have here, like you said, a phone of counseling service and guide to the individual, not just assume fend for themselves and go home, you know, because <laughs> some individuals don't, don't want to talk to their family members about their issues at work. You know, they, they want to, like you said, they want to talk to individuals from the same area where they will understand their mistakes. So it's important to have that level of support at work as well. Do you have anything else you want to add? I think leaders needs to be encouraging a non-punitive learning focus approach to errors. I think it should be their jobs and in, into institutionalizing that in the practice. So this helps reduce fear and shame associated with, with reporting mistakes, allow people to report. Like we said, talk, uh, establish peer support programs with colleagues. That will help a lot. And the con conduct of hot debriefs or debriefing process says allow staff to have five minutes just to quickly get together and, and check in with each other during those debriefs. Talk about emotions as well, not just about the facts of the cases. It's very easy to run into what happened, what happened, why did it happen? But check in, say, we often say, are you okay? I, and notice that this, you made a mistake, but this has impact on you instead of just jumping what happened. Again, encourage open discussions about errors. We need to start talking about mistakes and errors and learn from them, right? And in healthcare, they are already starting to learn about safety one, which is when things go right and learn from when things go right, not when things go wrong. Right. So we should also embark on that. So that's all my, my message to the leaders out there. Yeah, there are peer-to-peer -peer support groups that you can find even on Facebook. I know there is not one more vet. And I, and I know that that has been in a space where people can feel safe. They can post anonymously and maybe just talk about their feelings a little bit. So if you feel like you're not getting support from your leadership, there are outlets. You just have to go find them a little bit. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on today and talking to me about this very important phenomenon that occurs in veterinary medicine, but is underreported and, and not talked about enough. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. If you like what you heard today, I encourage you to check out NAVAS and consider becoming a member. As a member of the North American Veterinary Anesthesia Society, you get tons of benefits, including access to see events, focusing on anesthesia and pain management, blog posts, fireside chats with boarded anesthesiologists, as well as specialty technicians, and just so much more. Visit www.mynavas.org to advance your anesthesia journey today. As a reminder, the NAVAS Virtual Spring Symposium will be taking place on April 27th and 28th of this year. If you enjoyed this conversation, Dr. Santos will be a featured speaker at the NAVAS Symposium where he will be discussing second victim trauma. For more information, including other speakers and topics that will be presented, visit the website www.mynavas.org slash 2024 dash spring dash symposium registration for the symposium open on february 1st if you've been enjoying the content of this podcast i would sincerely appreciate it if you would give us a like or subscribe to our podcast write a review or simply spread the word about this podcast to your friends and coworkers. we appreciate any and all listener support if you have any questions about this week's episode or the NAVAS podcast in general, or if you want to suggest topics you would like for us to discuss in future episodes, please reach out to us at education at mynavas.org. We would love to hear from all of you. 
Also, a huge thank you to our sponsor, Decra, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Visit their website, www.decra-us.com to learn more about their line of veterinary anesthesia products. This podcast was produced by Maria Bridges, edited by Chris Webster of Chris Webster Productions, and technical support was provided by Sal Jimenez. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Luis Santos, for this incredibly insightful discussion on this important topic. And lastly, a huge thank you to all the gas passers out there who choose to spend their time with me today on the North American Veterinary Anesthesia Society podcast. Becoming a skilled anesthetist is a lifelong journey of learning and self-discovery, so I hope you consider listening in the future. I'm your host, Dr. Bonnie Gatson, and please take care of yourself and stay safe.